Welcome back to 10 Blocks. This is Teddy Kupfer, an associate editor of City Journal. And joining me on the show today is Joe Simonson. Joe is a friend of mine, a senior investigative reporter at the Washington Free Beacon, and he's been all over the country in recent weeks reporting on various House, Senate, and gubernatorial races. With Election Day a week away, I can't think of a better person to have on to preview the midterms, so Joe, thank you very much for joining. So let's just dive right in. Um, The Democrats currently hold control of the 50-50 Senate. They have an eight-seat House majority, uh, but as of now, betting markets and forecasting services see Republicans as a pretty safe bet to win back control of the House, as tends to happen uh, in the middle of a president's first term. They also rate the Senate a toss-up, and of course, there's plenty of fascinating governors and local races as well. But uh, I want to start with two states that sort of look like mirror images, Pennsylvania and Georgia. In PA, uh, we have an extremely tight contest for the Senate seat currently held by Pat Toomey. Republican Mehmet Oz is gaining momentum on Democrat John Fetterman after Fetterman's, shall we say, unfortunate debate performance. Uh, But the governor's race, polling suggests, is much less tight. Democrat Josh Shapiro has a commanding lead over Republican Doug Mastriano, who's associated with the Stop the Steal wing of the GOP. Then in Georgia, you have something similar unfolding with the parties reversed. So Republican uh, Brian Kemp and the incumbent governor holds a commanding lead to win re-election over political celebrity Stacey Abrams. But there's a tight contest in the Senate with Herschel Walker, a Republican, trying to fend off bad press against Democrat and incumbent Raphael Warnock. So, you know, in both cases, you have two very close Senate races. You have this confounding variable of lopsided or what appear to be lopsided gubernatorial races. And you have the question of whether Oz and Warnock can overcome uh, their weak party mates or, you know, whether we're likely to see a lot of ticket splitting. So I don't know. You can take the Georgia or PA in whatever order you'd like, but tell me what you're seeing in both of these races. Yeah, well, in Pennsylvania, um, obviously the debate performance from Fetterman probably moved over a lot of undecideds. And in every race, every year, the amount of undecideds probably shrinks uh, just to due to general polarization. Um, but I, I, I will say that Oz's numbers were really strengthening. And more importantly, Fetterman's numbers were really weakening in the weeks leading up to the debate. Um, and, and that was purely due to the fact that Fetterman really hasn't been on the campaign trail very much. Oz is probably campaigning harder than any candidate on the House or Senate or running for governor uh, on the map right now. I mean, he is driving around the uh, the state every single day, going to diners, going to schools, going to just about anything you can think of, going into the cities. Um, so he's, he's really uh, just been doing sort of retail politics uh, for the past four or five months in a way that Fetterman is essentially physically unable to do. Um, and so the co- consequence of that is also that Oz has, and he's been getting a lot more money from uh, Center, Senate Leadership Fund, is consequence of that he's been able to talk about Fetterman's record in a way that Fetterman can't really respond to, both literally and also because uh, he's just knocking the, the type of media exposure. And so what Oz was able to do before the debate was really shift the narrative against Fetterman, uh, talking about issues related to criminal justice, ta- talking about health care, crime generally, um, 
has been really Oz's strongest suit in that uh, in that race. And so I I think that the the debate definitely moved pushed the momentum even further in Oz's direction and probably helped him clean up a lot of those undecideds, probably a majority of them. If I had to guess, I would probably explain uh, recent polling. Um, but I, you know, I will say that even before this debate, Oz was really, uh, really, like I said, had the, had the momentum. Right. A couple more things, you know, I, I, our friend, uh, Jamel Bowie, the New York times, um, noted in a tweet that, you know, he chastised Oz for, uh, you know, allegedly mocking Fetterman's condition, right? He's a stroke victim. He's having what his campaign uh, says are auditory processing issues. He just closed captioning. I don't think I saw that. You know, I watched the debate on my local news channel here uh, in central PA. And, you know, Oz, as you suggest, is is really, go, you know, running very hard against uh, what he says is the Democratic agenda, not running so hard against Fetterman's um, cognitive condition, which, you know, obviously as, uh, well, hold on, Teddy, it's not cognitive. Sure. Right. Right. It's not, co- not cognitive, but uh, you know, as many people have pointed out, that would not be a winning strategy, right? Mocking a guy, uh, for struggling to speak, you know, that's, th- these are experiences that people have family members who have suffered strokes and that sort of thing. But, you know, I just think it's sort of a red herring, uh, this notion that Oz is mocking Fetterman. Although on the other hand, you know, one thing I am wondering about, Early voting is pretty permissive in the Keystone State. Um, lots of ballots have already been cast, bef- and, and many of those ballots were cast before the debate. So, you know, in this case, you have voters uh, voting without the information that the debate supplied them. Do you think that could uh, help push Fetterman over the line, or, or do you think that the momentum, you know, without asking you to make a prediction, do you think that early voting is not really going to swing this race? Yeah, you know, uh, Pennsylvania has been weird. I haven't been able to find a lot of good, reliable info on early voting. And most people who who work in consulting or who are kind of like data junkies on this stuff, which which I am not, usually tend to tend to say don't really pay so much attention to early voting. Obviously, early voting is going to be down um, in an off year. With that being said, again, yeah, if Oz doesn't win, probably be kind of easy to blame early voting. I mean, it's always going to be a counterfactual of like, would 100% of these people who voted for uh, Fetterman, would they have done so if if they had seen the debate beforehand? But at the same time, people who tend to early vote tend to be partisan Democrats. They're probably just going to vote for the person with the D next to their name. So it's it's one of these things where Pennsylvania is unique, I, I think, from just my impression of I can't seem to find any good, reliable analysis on it. And again, like I said, people usually caution from looking um, at early voting uh, in any in any race. And it didn't really tell us anything in 2020 either. I mean, these races were so close. And, and as we saw in 2020, early voting didn't really help Democrats at all. Um, in terms of turnout. So let's move on to Georgia here. Um, you know, the big two big storylines, I think, seem to be Stacey Abrams, who is a national political celebrity, uh, again, seems like a very weak candidate in when it comes to actually winning office in Georgia. And then second of all, um, there's the Herschel Walker campaign. He's uh, been the subject of multiple reports now that he in the past had paid off women to receive abortions. He denies this. Um, and yet, you know, he is despite this press, um, 
appears to be running neck and neck with Raphael Warnock, the incumbent. So what are you seeing in these races? Yeah, well, I think the Georgia Senate is probably almost guaranteed at this point to go into a runoff, which would be held in December. You have a libertarian getting four or five percent of the vote. He's basically a spoiler candidate. We, had, One of my colleagues, Alana Gabin, wrote a great piece about uh, the libertarian in this race. He was basically a partisan Democrat until five years ago, all in on universal health care, was a big Obama fan, um, now has decided he's a Democrat, or excuse me, he's a libertarian. And his platform is really focused on like social issues and criminal justice. He, he seems like a Democrat, um, but there are... With that being said, there are a lot of Republicans um, or a non-insignificant amount of Republicans, better way to say it, in Georgia who probably aren't huge fans of Warnock. Um, They might be Trump to Biden voters um, and they might not be really fans of Herschel Walker either. And so they might be just like a protest vote, picking the libertarian um, who might get even if he gets three or four percent, that's probably enough to push it into a runoff, uh, which will be held in December. Um, so it's really hard to say right now where that race is going because what happens on election day might not actually make that big of a difference. We saw that again in 2020 in the runoffs um, after the presidential race. Um, it's going to be very close. It, it just I don't see either candidate getting 50% on election day right now. But if there was going to be someone who got 50%, I probably would give that just to uh, – I'd probably give those odds um, – to Herschel Walker, just because, as you mentioned, Abrams is running so far behind um, the uh, the incumbent. Uh, I'm trying to blank on his name. Uh, on the camp, excuse me. Um, and also, Abrams has essentially, in my opinion, and I think I, I see Tim Ryan on this list too. I think someone like uh, Abrams and Ryan have more or less given up. If you look at Abrams's recent her recent rhetoric, she's really doubling down on identity politics type stuff. She's now coming out again in favor of reparations and defending her record on reparations in the debate. Uh, I think it was last night or maybe it was Friday. Uh, today we're recording on uh, on Monday. So it was either um, Sunday's debate or it was sometime on Friday or um, Saturday. But anyway, points during that debate, she started attacking the police um, saying, well, I don't, I don't want the because she's not getting any endorsements from sheriff's associations. She was saying, well, I don't need the good old boys who just want to take who just want to basically take black people off the street backing my campaign. I mean, just not remotely interested in winning the white suburban center that decide uh, that decide uh, Georgia's elections doubling down. She either thinks, A, I got to get an MSNBC gig out of this or B, it's all be about base. I need to get as many black partisan Democrats as possible to go to the polls, but it just doesn't, it, she does not seem to be taking the race very seriously at this point. Interesting. So uh, I want to bounce around the country a little bit. Um, the Ohio Senate race, Republican J.D. Vance running against Democrat Tim Ryan. This is one that Democrats had identified um, as a possible surprise pickup earlier in the cycle. You know, Ryan um, fashions himself a moderate Democrat. J.D. Vance the author of Hillbilly Elegy, of course, um, an investor uh, backed by the uh, entrepreneur Peter Thiel. Uh, it looks like he is going, he has consolidated his support and he is ultimately going to win. The 538 polling average has him up two percentage points, 46.8 to 44.8. What are some of the lessons of this race? You know, why were Democrats 
so optimistic in the first place and why does it appear they're going to fall short? Yeah, I have a, I have a lot to say on this race. I'll keep it brief. Um, I'm working on a piece about it um, that, that'll come out after the election. But to keep it brief, like I said, and to answer your question as directly as possible, why, did Demo- why were Democrats optimistic about this race? <clears throat> One, J.D. had a very rough primary. Um, he barely won the primary. Uh, he's a weak, he's, he's certainly a weak candidate. Uh, there was plenty of evidence in the early months, even mid-months uh, of, the, of the campaign that he was a weak general candidate. He did not have very <clears throat> high name recognition, <clears throat> not very high name recognition in the state. Tim Ryan, even if you don't like him, if you're in Ohio, you're familiar with him. He's been there for 20 years. Uh, well, actually longer. He's been in Congress for 20 years and he's a state legislator for a few state senator. Um, and so d- there is, <laughs> why were Democrats? Tim Ryan has, do- uh, has dominated in terms of small dollar donations. I think he's the fourth or fifth uh, biggest recipient on Act Blue, which is the Democrats' main fundraising platform for normal people. If they want to donate money to a candidate, you go through Act Blue if you're donating to a Democrat, uh, which is kind of remarkable. He's outraising. Uh, candidates uh, like Raphael Warnock. Um, he's outraising um, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin. Uh, he's outraising uh, Democrats on the House and um, Senate level in North Carolina. He's outraising Mark Kelly and other Democrats in Arizona. So it, it is rather remarkable that a, uh, a state that Trump won twice by over eight points has been has been has captured. The Democratic base, people who, like I said, are, are willing to actually write a check, whether it's 50, 100, 200, $2,000. He's, he's done an excellent job nationally at cultivating an image that this race is winnable. Um, and, and like I said, I, I think a lot of Democratic consultants, I think a lot of Democrats in the media and reporters in the media smelled blood in the water in the summer with J.D., and uh, that really just, like I said, helped propel Ryan to have this huge campaign apparatus. And basically, the more money you have, the more media you get. And um, I, I'm not too confident in Ryan's chances as we get closer to the election. Like I said, I don't get the sense at this point Ryan is trying very hard to win. It, it, there, you know, there's all sorts of questionable decisions someone, candidates such as Tim Ryan, have made in the past two or three years, knowing that he wanted to run for Senate, but just in the past few weeks, I mean, Ryan refusing, there's two, and I'll I'll leave it at this. There are two ballot initiatives in Ohio um, on election day that Ryan has refused to take a position on. Uh, The first ballot initiative is, uh, I think it's called ballot initiative one, is whether judges ought to be required to take into consideration a accused criminal's threat to public safety when setting bail. Really easy thing for a Democrat to endorse. The Democrat gov- gubernatorial nominee who has basically no shot to win, and she's been running on abortion rights, very progressive platform, has even endorsed this ballot measure. Ryan says he hasn't taken a position. The second uh, ballot initiative, which like I said, I think is ballot initiative two, is 
uh, whether there should the Ohio state constitution should be amended to forbid illegal aliens from participating in elections uh, at the federal, state, and local level in the state. Again, Tim Ryan asked about, he's been asked about this several times. Most recently, he was asked about it last week, I believe. He says, I haven't even read them yet. I don't know. These are softball questions down the middle. JD obviously has been consistent on this. He won't take a position. And it, it again, it's just, it's such you know, for someone who's trying to pitch himself as a moderate, if you can't tell voters whether you think illegal immigrants should be able to vote or not, I don't see how you're seriously uh, running for a statewide seat. Yeah, this this question of whether Democrats are capable of moderating on some of these big issues, crime and immigration, uh, definitely something we should return to later on because it's been a big theme. And I'll just say really quickly, you can just lie. You can just lie. I mean, John Fetterman lied in the his, his most famous debate moment. In the in the Pennsylvania uh, debate, was um, whether he was asked about fracking, and of course he was barely coherent. But he said, "I support fracking. I support fracking." No one believes John Fetterman supports fracking. He's been on the record a hundred times saying he doesn't support it. Liberal Democrats do not support fracking. He's just going to lie. That's better than just saying, "I don't know. I haven't looked into the matter." Which again, and these are softball issues. And by the way, your average Democrat doesn't think illegal immigrants should be able to vote. I mean, this is complete capture by uh, the left-wing base of the party and the donor class. And it's just, it's really puzzling to see there's, it really just does defy a good explanation if you seriously think you're, you're in the hunt uh, to win. Sure. So let's move over uh, to the Grand Canyon state, Arizona, where we have um, two fairly competitive races in the Senate. Mark Kelly leads Blake Masters in the polling average, 48.1% to 44.8%. Uh, Masters, of course, the uh, former or current executive at Teal Capital, um, backed by uh, his former boss, Peter Teal, in the primary, uh, has, you know, had had a bit of a rocky start to the general election after the primary, as as did his fellow Teal associate, J.D. Vance, mean, but but has sort of shored up his, his support lately in some recent polls shown ahead. And then in the governor's race, Really interesting. You have Carrie Lake, a former television anchor and a Republican, beating Katie Hobbs, the Democrat. Lake, uh, you know, a very exciting candidate for many Arizona voters, but a very disturbing candidate for um, many others. You know, she, she's been associated sort of like Mastriano with the stop the steel wing of the movement, uh, echoed some of Trump's claims about the 2020 election. And yet there's something about her um, that has really resonated. So talk about these races. Tell me uh, what's what's happening lately and, and why you think um, these candidates are in the positions they're in. Yeah. Um, like you said, the apt comparison for someone such as Blake Masters is JD in Ohio. They both had really tight primaries. Um, they weren't particularly strong primary candidates. Uh, the Trump endorsement pushed them over the edge. They were bankrolled by a single guy that pissed off a lot of people, both in the state and nationally uh, in the GOP. But J.D., I think, has done a much better job at adjusting uh, to a general election. His message has been very consistent. He's hitting. J.D. is running the kind of race your generic Republican is running around the country. Things cost too much. There's too much fentanyl in the country. And these we, we you know, the American people are tired of one state rule. Blake is interesting. Blake has run a hard right campaign 
except such as uh, similarly to JD uh, has moderated on one issue and one issue only, which is abortion. Um, but at the end of the day, again, Blake, like JD, low name recognition, really hoping that R next to his name pushes him over or was hoping that R next to his name was would push him over, I think, um, aside from, I think, some sort of vague ideas about how, if you know, the more hard right you run on social issues and stuff like that, uh, you actually speak to voters in a way that generic Republicans don't. But that's, I think, totally put aside right now where I think his entire campaign strategy is tying himself to Carrie Lake. Blake Masters does not hold independent campaign events anymore. In fact, I don't think he has held a rally by himself in the last I'm sure I'll be fact-checked here, but I'm sure you go back in the last month. I think every single campaign event he has held has been of Carrie Lake. Why? Carrie Lake is a complete juggernaut uh, that I think we're going to be talking about Carrie Lake for a very long time after this race. She is absolutely annihilating her opponent, who uh, Katie Hobbs, who is very weak um, and is taking full advantage of that. Uh, And Carrie also is tying herself to Blake. I think at the end of the day, Carrie Lake wants to be seen as someone who pulled Blake across the finish line. Um, And so the polls are tightening. I think that's basically Republican voters are coming home. Most polling shows Mark Kelly holding a slight lead. I think at the end of the day, this entire race is going to come down to whether Carrie Lake can pull him over the edge because the, the, Blake does not want to be seen as Blake Masters. Blake wants to be seen as Carrie Lake's running mate and a Republican, a generic Republican. And uh, I, I think that's the way that that race is pulling out. And so, you know, again, it's going to come down to ticket splitting. Mark Kelly, whatever you think of him, has essentially unlimited money. He's a very, very generic Democrat. Doesn't really sponsor many legislation, much legislation. He votes for Biden 100% of the time, like every other Democrat. But not the easiest op- uh, opponent to land a punch on. And, and Blake really hasn't other than maybe a f- few things on the border. But um, just, you know, to repeat myself one time again, I think the only way, the way to look at the Arizona Senate race is how much does Carrie Lake win by if she does win and how much ticket splitting there is. Because I think that's that's basically the whole ball game for for Masters. So let's switch gears here a bit um, from our hopping around the country approach. I want to talk about a specific issue, crime, um, and and you know how you're seeing it play out in races across the country. You know, two races that come to mind for me: Wisconsin Senate and Oregon Governor. Um, in Wisconsin, you have Ron Johnson uh, with a significant, I think, consistent lead over Mandela Barnes, who was again another favorite of. Uh, the Democratic Party early on looked like he could perhaps knock off Johnson, who tends to be a pretty hard right senator. Um, but he's been absolutely killed by his advocacy for defunding the police in 2020. Um, his his participation in what was called in many quarters the racial reckoning has really come back to hurt him, it, it appears, in the state. Meanwhile, in Oregon, um, you know, where Portland, the uh, largest city in the state, was ground zero for some of the uh, disorder that we saw in the wake of those protests and riots. The governor's race is really tight. Republican Christine Drazen is challenging uh, Democrat Tina Kotek, and Portland voters, meanwhile, are considering a ballot initiative to remake their system of government. There's all sorts of um, surprising results in these two states that I, I think it's fair to say 
uh, are significantly substantially influenced by you know, voters just not regarding Democrats as serious on crime. So you don't have to stick to these two states. Just tell me a little bit about how you're seeing this issue affect races across the country. Yeah, I, crime, I, I think, honestly, um, the GOP really found its footing on the issue following the Dobbs decision. They were clearly talking about it beforehand. Dobbs kind of put a pause on GOP messaging for a few weeks, if not a month. Every candidate, especially really hurt Republicans most, I think, at the House level, because you just had a bunch of people who are new to politics who have been saying they were pro-life and, and a state legislator for years, but then suddenly, oh, you want to be sent to D.C., What is so you want to ban abortion. So I think for about two or three weeks, close to a month, um, GOP was really had a hard time figuring out their messaging on abortion, but they found their footing uh, on abortion. But more importantly, they found their footing on the issue of crime, where it, it just seems like every Democrat in this country I'm being a little hyperbolic, but it is rather remarkable. And we cover it so much at the Free Beacon, all these house races that I'm not going to get into. And your viewers or your listeners don't need to know all their names. But it, it is remarkable how the summer during the summer of 2020, essentially every Democrat felt the need to take a radical position on criminal justice reform, whether that meant abolishing the police, whether that meant supporting Black Lives Matter, which now is a extremely unpopular uh, as an organization and or just making kind of vague assertions about systemic racism in criminal justice, how we need to like reform the way we look at criminal justice. I mean, every Democrat felt pressure. And I think we're happy to to make all these sort of pronouncements on the issue. And and so Republicans are more than happy to dig up all these all these old sound clips and and the like to really the whack more of the head. And, 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 and you know, you go at the House level, at the really granular level of how these races will be decided, where what are these candidates saying on the ground? Republicans have been beating Democrats over the head with this issue because it doesn't matter <clears throat> doesn't matter whether you're in Portland, Denver, Tucson, Lansing, Michigan, um, Pittsburgh, wherever, um, or a random town in Ohio, everyone is worried about crime. It is going up everywhere. Democrats like to say, oh, uh, Republicans only talk about crime in blue cities, this, this, and that. Um, but it's also going up in red states. And it's like, yeah, sure. But who runs the cities in red states? It's mostly Democrats. And at the end of the day, even if it is a state, a state that's controlled by Republicans, a red state, voters will always trust the Republican on criminal justice reform. There's always more we can do to either lock people up or whatever. Um, so it, it is absolutely the, the issue that, that is holding the most salience um, at, right after cost of living. It's, it's usually crime. Um, and so you take Wisconsin, for example, Mandela Barnes, <clears throat> Democrats <clears throat> really saw Ron Johnson as the prime pickup there, um, which I always think is interesting because Ron John is really a fascinating uh, political creature. He was first elected in 2010 during a GOP wave, re-elected in 2016, outperformed Trump in 2016. The SLF, all major GOP donors cut off Ron in the final months of that Senate campaign, ends up winning, gives a big middle finger to the establishment. Um, and like I said, outruns Trump, arguably pulls Trump across the finish line. 
And now, again, every all the Democrats thought he was a target, but uh, the race is tight. But I, I think Ron John, um, he's really good at retail politicking. Um, voters there trust him. And, 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 and Democrats basically nominated this guy, Mandela Barnes. Again, he's lieutenant governor, but it was a coronation. He did not face the real primary. Um, and suddenly no one was going to hit him from the right in the Democratic primary. And now because he was untested in that primary, he's got this huge record that is just turning off the suburban voters uh, in the state. A couple more issues. Um, you know, I think both of us think the Republican position on abortion rights had been a lag electorally, you know, after Dobbs, which you mentioned, uh, results in a Kansas referendum to the state constitution, a New York special election in a representative House district seem to suggest that voters were punishing Republicans for what they viewed as an extreme stance um, on abortion. And yet that seems to have subsided recently. So it, is, is it that Republicans have found their messaging, as, as I think you suggested a little earlier on? Is it that the uh, critique of the Republican stance was a little overblown? Um, or is it just that you know inflation, crime, cost of living, these types of issues are ultimately what people are voting on and caring about right now? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a combination of all of the above. I, I'm probably in the minority here where I think that the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade, um, actually really did set back Republicans momentarily. I think a lot of the momentum we're seeing in polling, and again, to the extent you can trust polls, but it's the only information we really have right now. I think a lot of the, the momentum we're seeing in the polling um, in the past few weeks, <clears throat> it would have been probably nicer if you're a Republican running a campaign to maybe see it maybe one, two weeks prior. And before Dobbs in uh, the beginning of, at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022, I mean, gosh, I mean, Biden's approval numbers were just atrocious. I mean, he was he was not even breaking 40 percent if and and that's not to say this that would have held uh, until November. But we Republicans are really talking about maybe 50 seat majority. I really 1992 type numbers. Um, and I like I said earlier, the uh, the Dobbs decision really did. It, it made the GOP pause. It made them kind of have to figure out messaging. I think they were a lot of House candidates were bailed out by Lindsey Graham's bill in the Senate, which is a 15-week nationwide abortion ban. That gave the opportunity for uh, Republican candidates to say, "Oh no, I support that. I support that," and then flip the question around uh, to Democrats, say, "Well, what what do you support? You don't support any limits. You're the radical." Um, and also, uh, as an extension of that pause, it really did um, mean that uh, SLF and also the uh, CLF Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the GOP big money pack, um, had to sort of rethink where, where they were going to spend money. So they started having to spend money to candidates that were really either incumbents who suddenly looked a little bit more vulnerable. Don Bacon in, in Nebraska is one I'm thinking of, Nebraska too. Um, had to start spending money to him. He was now on the defensive. Um, and that meant that seats uh, that really should be, that should have been targeted GOP pickups from Democrats uh, just weren't getting money for like a crucial one month period. Um, and uh, so at the end of the day, I think GOP found its, um, found its footing. The economy is not in good shape. The, that's what voters care about the most. Um, so I think it was a bunch of things. But I, I really, 
I think we're probably, I think people who are saying abortion actually didn't matter really need to rethink, um, you know, what exactly is helping Republicans right now. Right. That makes sense to me. Uh, one more kind of broad story I wanted to talk about. So, you know, there's much ballyhooed um, notion of a rightward shift among Hispanics after 2020, uh, where Trump and Republicans seem to run ahead in many Hispanic heavy counties, uh, although not not everywhere across the country, largely in Texas and Florida, um, people have been sort of looking to 2022 to ask the question, is this cycle going to persist? Um, and, you know, is the sort of emerging Democratic majority thesis, uh, are we going to see yet another nail in that thesis's coffin? Uh, I, I'm curious what you make of this. You know, in Florida, we have Rubio and DeSantis look like they're heading to big wins, which seems like the sunshine state, sunshine state's transformation into a red state uh, is continuing apace. In Texas, uh, we have Greg Abbott uh, with a, a pretty substantial lead over Beto O'Rourke. Uh, in the governor's race, you have Myra Flores, a Republican congresswoman in a South Texas district, uh, running close uh, to maintain the seat that she won in a special election. In Nevada, you have Catherine Cortez Masto, the Democrat, uh, running very close with Adam Laxalt, the Republican. So, you know, I, it's too early to say, obviously, whether we have, uh, we, we certainly don't have conclusive evidence that the the uh, putative Hispanic rightward shift is continuing. But what are some of the races to look for um, if, if observers are, are hoping to test that thesis on Tuesday? Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I, I think the way a lot... Uh, I think one way to look at the Hispanic voter shift is where exactly it's going on. It's going on in the Rio Grande Valley um, towards <clears throat> Hispanics there. These are almost unanimous. A lot of these towns and cities are virtually 100% Hispanic. Um, and I think it's rather... With many people from Mexico, right? These are Mexican-Americans. Right? Yes. These are a lot, you know, second, third generation Mexicans. These are not where migrants stay either, Um they're not when when someone crosses the border legally or is claiming asylum. They're they're not hanging out in Brownsville. They're going somewhere else. Um, but that's important also um, to note because a these are Mexican Americans, and the migrants who are coming through are not Mexican American usually. Um, they're Guatemalan, El Salvadoran, or whatever, or Venezuelan. Um, and. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of the rightward shift there is that these people are just just fed up. I mean, it really is. I was down in the Rio Grande um, about six months ago for a work trip, and the havoc, the, the border chaos is wreaking on these towns. Really, can't be overstated. I mean, you cannot go anywhere along the Rio Grande in these towns here and not see evidence of the border crisis. Whether that's just migrants walking around looking to leave, whether it's de debris, litter, um, it, it's just it's just absolutely everywhere. And we, the past five to 10 years, we just essentially, we've been living through an, a period of elevated illegal immigration or uh, illegal or elevated migration through the southern border. And I think that, frankly, is enough to... Um, you know, we talk about crime and how maybe white voters in Philadelphia suburbs or whatever are worried about uh, crime in the city, um, you know, 20 miles away or 20 minutes away. You know, down there, it, it's, it's a fact of everyday life. Uh, you have smugglers, you have drugs running through, you have just all sorts of, frank, frankly, like I said, chaos. And so I think that alone 
kind of explains it. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, and yeah, there are these kind of like macro trends. The economy is not very good and all that. And it's hard to be a, a Democrat right now. But I think that explains a lot of it. Um, and Nevada as well. I think Nevada is a little bit different a situation. Why would Laxalt maybe be doing so well with Hispanics there? Well, it could be sort of this general trend uh, trend of Hispanics moving rightward. But also, if you look at Nevada, I think Nevada has the worst inflation in the country. I think food prices have gone up the most there. I think rents have gone up the most there. I think gas is some of the most expensive in the country there. So at the end of the day, if you're a Hispanic voter, uh, which makes up an increasingly larger share of voters in Nevada, you're tired of Democratic leadership and they don't have good answers. Democrats do not have good answers on this. So I think a lot of it, um, it, it I think the simplest explanation is usually the best one. Um, and, and it really, you have to look state by state, district by district to look at why Hispanics are moving, uh, moving rightward. Uh, it, now it is true, obviously nationwide in 2020, it did. Uh, Hispanic and immigrants did move rightward. Um, but I think when looking, when analyzing specific races, you should probably mostly pay attention to the, uh, the issues facing that state or district. Sure. Always good advice. So, um, you know, before I, before we close, I want to ask you, are there any other races that we mentioned today that you're eyeing? I know you've been in Michigan recently, uh, reporting on some of the contests there. Um, I, you know, we didn't get to New York gubernatorial race where Lee Zeldin, uh, is running close. Um, North Carolina Senate, you know, any or all or none of these, what, what else are you going to be watching uh, Tuesday night? Yeah, I mean, I think the the big one is uh, on election night, you know, start looking at um, what the results are in the Northeast. Um, Jahana Hayes, who's an incumbent in, in uh, Connecticut, uh, she's facing a very, very tough reelection race against uh, from George Logan, who's a black Republican. I believe that's a CT5. Um, very impressive guy could be the first time. in I think 20 years, um, that, uh, Connecticut elects a Republican to go to the house. Um, and then also in Rhode Island, Alan Fung, really impressive guy, kind of a funny pitch, uh, from him. He was a mayor of, uh, a smaller, smallish town city in Rhode Island. Uh, he's running against this guy named Seth Magaziner. And Magaziner is kind of this, he's very wealthy, uh, white guy who, again, didn't really have much of a primary, was more of a coronation because his family's been there for a long time and he worked uh, for the governor. Um, you got, and he's being challenged, like I said, by Alan Fung, whose entire central pitch is just essentially like, I'm a moderate. I don't really think of myself as like a Republican or a Democrat. I guess I'm a Republican because like, I'm kind of a business guy and like, they seem most effective to... Uh, in getting things done. But, you know, you're someone like Matt, and he's a moderate on abortion. He's not like a MAGA guy. Um, although he did compliment Trump on the economy. And so if you're someone like Magaziner, you, you just don't have a message right now when the economy is in bad shape. You know, it's it's kind of remarkable in these districts how much a normie Republican, how much damage they can really do. I mean, there's just nothing. It's really hard to uh, to stick anything against someone like that. And that's, I think, the same dynamic you're seeing in Connecticut as well. So if those two flip um, and the GOP, NRCC, uh, National Republican Congressional Committee is pretty bullish on those chances, if those flip relatively handily, I think Republicans will probably have a, a very good night. All right. Um, Joe Simonson, thank you very much. Last question. Uh, give me 
two, give me a number for uh, the Senate, the balance of the Senate at the end of the night. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ask you to do that. Uh, listeners, don't forget to check out Joe's reporting for the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, his writing on the City Journal website as well is at city-journal.org. We will link to his author pages in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal, on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI, and you find Joe on Twitter at Says Simonson. And as always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Joe, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Teddy. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.